Amen. Well, this morning uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over there. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles for you to use at the end of each aisle down the center. They're under the chairs. So thankfully we've got short aisles today, so you guys can just flag somebody down who's sitting on the aisle. They'll pass them to you. Uh, There are also pens there if you want to take scrupulous notes during this message or if you want to fill out the card that you were given in your your worship guide, those pens are there for you to use. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, we started this beautiful chapter last week and introduced. we were introduced to the concept of a covenant. It's a concept that's going to control much of what's coming in this letter. It's going to control us for the next two weeks as we, as we come at this last section of chapter 8 twice. We're going to take a pass by it twice. We're going to focus on it today and, and try to understand the promises that it relates to us just on their own. And, and to understand why they're so beautiful. What, are the, what about the details commends them to us and draws us in? And then, and then next week our goal will be to, to come at them very practically and say what would it look like for us to live these promises, to, is it, to live like they're true, to put them into practice. That's where we're headed the next couple of weeks. This weekend, as I, as I just prayed, we celebrated a wedding of two of our dear members who have been with us from the beginning and have invested so much in us. We got to come and celebrate them. And I couldn't, I couldn't help as I'm as I'm preparing for their wedding, and then also preparing for this message, seeing so many beautiful analogies between the covenant that marriage is and and the covenant that we're called to in this passage. I, I think I mentioned this last week, but I don't think that covenant is something we naturally understand when we hear that word. We hear it some, but what we're much more familiar with is a contract, right? A contract is a legally binding written agreement that that tightly specifies what you're responsible to and what somebody else is responsible to. And and, and what separates, we said last week, a covenant from a contract is the scale of it. In a contract, it's very narrowly defined. In a covenant, you're committing yourself, pretty much everything about you. You're committing your identity in a new way to the person you're in covenant with. And I, I came away from that wedding with a, a much more clear, vivid taste of what that difference is. Think about the experience you have closing on a house, if you've ever had that, and the experience you have at, at a wedding. Closing on a house, I mean, this is just a stack of paperwork. Anybody done that before or heard about it? You, you guys know about what, what, what's involved in a closing? It's a stack of paperwork for you to sign. And the reason it is so elaborate is that this contract that you're signing is so very particular. Every little detail is worked out because the contract won't be binding in anything that isn't specified there. Everything is worked out, right? But then when the covenant of marriage is sealed, it's done with a few words. It's done with a vow, with a promise to have and to hold for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse. It takes one sentence. And the reason is that How could you specify everything that you're committing yourself to in a covenant? What you're committing is yourself. The details, the circumstances, those are irrelevant. You're committing everything about who you are to the person that you're in covenant with. It's not a contract. And the beautiful message of the Bible is that God, from the beginning, has been after his children to make a covenant with them. From the beginning... God has responded to his children disobeying him, abandoning him, not by turning his back on them, but by going after them, 
last week we, we were introduced to this concept of a new or better covenant. It's one of the things that Hebrews is most concerned with, with, with trying to present Jesus as the fulfillment of something that was only vaguely foreshadowed in the world of the Old Testament. That, that though they had this covenant that governed how Israel related to God, there were deep flaws in it. This morning, what we're going to get at is, is a better understanding of what was lacking in that old covenant and how the new covenant fixes it. And here is the essence of it. The old covenant was, def- was deficient, not because of anything particularly written in that covenant, but because of the people in the covenant. What was wrong in the old covenant was that the people to whom God had covenanted himself were not able to fulfill their side of the covenant. You could see the Old, the old Testament as just one really long story of God's people turning on him over and over again. Even right after he's delivered them. Let's take Exodus, for example. One of the beautiful examples of God coming to his people, rescuing them out of slavery, and then he, he's going to place them in this perfect land where everything that they need will be cared for. And what do they do? On the way to the promised land, they build themselves another kind of God because they don't trust that this God can deliver on his promises to them. They turn on him. What do they do when they get into the land? They want a king because God is not enough for them. What do they do when they have a king? They start bringing in the gods of the nations to match this king of the nations that they have. And the whole Old Testament is this sordid tale of God's people turning on him over and over again. And then at the end of it, in the middle of one of the most trenchant analyses of God's judgment on his people, in the middle of the book of Jeremiah, just as God is promising to destroy the nation that he had built because of their unfaithfulness. He comes and cuts through that judgment with a new word of promise that this judgment that his people deserve will not be the last word on his relationship to those he'd made in his image, but that there would come a time after those days when a new covenant would be established and this covenant would not be one that his people could break. The difference between the old covenant and the new one is that under the old one, the deficiencies of God's people rendered it useless. Under the new one, God will fix his people. He will, by fixing his people, do everything that's necessary to uphold this covenant that he's making. That's the gist of it. What I want you to come away with today is this, is this powerful sense our passage gives us that God has not responded to us in the way we respond to other people. We check out, right? When we've been wronged over and over again, especially, there comes a time, there comes a tipping point in the relationship where we just say, I can't go there anymore. I've just got to get myself out of that relationship. And and I'm not saying this morning that's not a good thing in human relationships. Sometimes that, that point gets reached. What I want you to see, though, is that God doesn't treat us that way. That after being, after being rejected time and again by Israel, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, by each one of us in this room, God has responded to that abandonment with a covenant that makes it certain that we will never be separated from him because he takes our sinfulness out of the picture. He fixes us. That's where we're headed this morning. Like I said before, what we want to do is come at these promises this morning and just try to grab them. We want to, we want to grab hold of them and understand how this language that may be familiar, maybe may a little abstract or vague, 
is actually precious news to us this morning. And if we've got a good, firm grasp on them, then next week what we want to do is come back through the same promises and ask very practically, what would it look like for us to live like these promises are true? So today, better promises. If you found Hebrews chapter 8, would you go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word? We're going to read uh, from verses 6 to 13. This is the Word of the Lord, His promises to us. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This new covenant that God has made with his people... The new covenant that extends to us as an invitation is a covenant that's based on better promises. What we want to understand this morning is why they're better. There's three of them, and here's the way I'm, here's the way I'm framing them, and I hope, that, I hope it'll make some sense to you. There are three promises here that sets this covenant apart from the old one. God promises under this covenant to change what we want. God promises under this new covenant to satisfy us with himself. And God promises in this new covenant to forget our sins against him. Those are the three promises I want to unpack for us this morning. Let's start with the first one. This one comes in verse 10. And verses 8 and 9 set the stage. God had made a covenant with his people. It's kind of recalling that story. And they had failed miserably. Verse, verse 9 describes it in terms that, are, if we really connect with them, are almost heartbreaking. They describe God going to his people in their distress when they were in captivity and helpless and God taking them by the hand like a father leading his child across a busy street, tenderly caring for them, bringing them into this place where he would promise to fulfill every need that they have and their response to his grace towards them. Their response is that they failed to continue in my covenant. That's verse 9. If the covenant is only as secure, in other words, as our moral resolve, sort of our ability to discipline ourselves, to hunker down, and to do what God tells us to, if that's as secure as the covenant is, then then the point of the whole Old Testament is that we're, we're doomed. 
because we won't ever fulfill it. So the first promise of the new covenant strikes directly at this problem. You see that? If, if, what the, if the problem in the first covenant was not the, the laws it gave, but the people who were unable to fulfill it, then the, then the first strike in the new covenant is to change the people, to make them different people, to transform what they want, and in transforming their desires, transform their ability to live for God in faithfulness. That's God's promise in verse 11, or excuse me, in verse 10. He promises, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Do you see that? He's talking about changing the way they think, the way they feel, and ultimately the way they act by changing who they are, by changing their, their, their core being, their, their very hearts. It's not like, notice this. This is, a, this is a big difference between the way God covenants with us and the way we normally react to, to people's flaws. It's not like God reduces what he requires, right? It's not like he just says, okay, you, you guys couldn't reach this bar, so, so let me lower it for you, you know? Let me, let, me, let me dip you into the kiddie pool here since you can't swim the deep end. He doesn't do what, I remember when I was in grad school hearing all my professors complain about, which, you know, maybe this, maybe this is just what every professor does in every age, but they, they just complain about the decline in the abilities of the students, right? The students just aren't what they were 20 years ago when I started out my career, you know? I can't grade them that hard anymore because they've had this sense of entitlement. They all deserve A's, and so their response was usually just to change their grading scale, just to basically, rather than deal with it, give them what they want to just re- reduce what they expect out of their students. That's kind of what we do. It's, a lot of times it's easier to lower our standards than to confront people who are failing our standards. God, God didn't work that way. The covenant failed because the people were unable to fulfill it, but he doesn't respond by lowering the bar. What he, what he does is he changes his people. He raises them up and gives them new abilities. That's the promise of, of verse 10. The promise is that he's going to write his laws on their minds and their hearts, not rules presented outside of them to them, but, but, but things that are embedded in them, things that motivate them so that God's people will obey, not, bec- not because they're forced to, because somebody's got a gun to their head, but because they want to, because they love the ways of God, because they're motivated toward them and they, they see them in a new way as something that's beautiful, that, that draws them in. Why is that a solution to the disobedience of the people? Why target that, changing their hearts and their minds? I think it has everything to do with the nature of action. This is just a basic principle in human psychology that we do things that we want. That, that, that actions don't just come out of nowhere. They're not random. Our behavior is, is driven by motives, by desires. That's where it comes from. So if you want people to, to act differently... You can't just constrain them through raw discipline. You've got to change what they want. The Bible talks about our heart. I think the Bible is as clear on this principle that even secular psychologists have recognized. Uh, it, 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 It explains it in such a beautiful way. The Bible talks about our hearts, about our core self, about the seat of our values and motives and desires as a kind of battleground, as what one uh, Christian psychologist called an embattled kingdom ruled either by one kind of desire or by another kind of desire. Doesn't that ring true for you? Think about when you lash out in anger, when you actually act on your anger, isn't it because something you wanted 
has been thwarted, something you desired to see happen has not happened, and you have maybe don't have control over it. So your your angry your angry outburst is a, is about desire. Isn't isn't every lie that we tell ultimately driven by a desire to protect something, a desire to to have a certain kind of reputation that might be threatened in that moment? So it's it's not that we just want to deceive. It's that that action of lying is driven by our primary desire, sort of primal instinct to want to be liked. So ask yourself, what do you want? What do you hope to achieve? What do you want to own? Who do you want to impress? What do you want to experience? What sorts of pleasure? And when you answer those questions, what you have is the answer to why you do the things that you do. So God's strategy to create a covenant that his people couldn't break was to transform his people. And that wasn't about giving them new laws, maybe even easier laws to obey. It was about giving them new hearts to want different things. The promise of the new covenant is that you are not stuck where you are. Doesn't doesn't it feel that way sometimes? I'm sure every every one of us sitting in here has a certain sin pattern right now that we wish we could get rid of. And doesn't it feel a lot of times like you're just stuck in it? Like you just you're on a treadmill. You just can't shake free of it. On the one hand, this passage is saying, yeah, that's kind of true. You are stuck. Uh, there is nothing that you can do on your own because your desires are at a primal level that aren't in your control. But on the, other, on the other hand, this promise is that you are not stuck because God promises to fix you. He promises that he, by his own power, will not respond to your abandonment of him by writing you off and moving on to someone else who might have a better quality about them. His response to your insufficiency is to change you, to make you different. God isn't limited by our weaknesses. At the core of this new covenant is a promise, a promise that makes this covenant better than what came before. And it's a promise that he is going to transform us, to give us new senses, new tastes, to see beauty where we didn't see it before, to taste deliciousness of his law in a way that we couldn't before. That's the promise of the new covenant. Second promise that he gives us comes out in verse 11. Verse 11 says this, They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. A second promise of the new covenant is that all of God's people will know him. It doesn't matter how young they are, how intelligent they are, how disciplined they are. If they are in his covenant through their trust in him, they will know him. Now don't mistake this for the simple sounding thing that, that it may come across as. I know sometimes we read that, oh, you're going to know the Lord, and it just it bounces off like water off a duck's back because... At the one hand, it sounds too simple, and maybe in another way, it sounds too abstract. What does it mean to know someone we can't even see or talk to in the way that we talk to another friend? We've got to get a hold on what this promise means for us before we can truly accept and, and embrace and fall in love with what Jesus has offered us. We've been saying all along, ever since we started 
talking about Jesus as a priest. And we were asking things like, why, why do we even need a priest? That just seems like such a distant office or institution to, to what we deal with every day. And the answer we, we've been giving is that we need a priest because our relationship with God, which is the relationship we were made for and the one that determines whether we live a full and happy life in this life and the one that, that determines whether or not we live forever in his presence, that relationship that we were made for has been broken. And the priest's job is to, to bring the parties back together. This promise at the heart of the new covenant is that that relationship is going to be healed that we will all know God. Now, obviously, just to name the obvious, what this promise involves is much more than knowing your car, right? Even than knowing your neighbor or knowing your kids. There's something much deeper involved here. In a way, you could see this knowledge of God that's promised in the covenant as the goal of the whole Bible. It's the reason that God made us. It's what got broken by sin. And now it's the goal of the, of the covenant God is making to fix what went wrong. Think about, for instance, the, the just even the phrase that gets repeated in what we read this morning. The phrase that always comes with every, every phase in God's covenant with his people. The goal of the covenants are that that he would be our God and we would be his people. You know that phrase? It comes up over and over again. The goal is for a, a healed relationship where we, we treat God, relate to God in the way that we were meant to, and he relates to us in the way that he was meant to as, as the one true source of everything that we need. That, that's the goal of the Bible. It's the goal of the Bible in place of all the other things we try to fill our void with. One of my favorite references to this knowledge of God as the goal is Jeremiah 9. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. Jeremiah says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. What he's doing there, he's isolating these three main things we live for. We want money. We want to be known as wise, as intelligent. We want power. We want to be strong. These other things that call for our affection. Let not those things be our boast, but what? In its place. Let him who boasts, Jeremiah says, boast of this. That he understands and knows the Lord. And according to Jesus, this knowledge of God is the whole point of the eternal life that he came to bring. Listen to John 17. Jesus praying over his people, asking that God would give them the salvation that he came to prepare for them. And this is how he frames it. This is eternal life, he says. This is eternal life, John 17, that they may know you, the only true God. Whatever is being promised here in this new covenant is something that is much different from the kind of knowledge that we think of when we immediately hear those words. It's bigger than that. It's deeper. It touches everything. It's, it's meant to be who we are, and God is promising to give us that. What is it, exactly? Knowing God is, of course, much more than just knowing about him. You can't know somebody that you don't know some things about, right? I mean, 
immediately when you when you strike up a friendship with somebody you want to know where they're from you know what was their childhood like what do they do now where do they work do they have any family you want to know these things about them because that provides a context for for knowing them in a relationship but it's never just that if it was we could say that we know president obama or we could we could know president washington who's been dead for hundreds of years right if that's what it was about it's it's more it's more like knowing a spouse or a parent or a friend it's a relational knowledge that's promised. I think what it boils down to is two things. Here's, here's what it is to know the Lord. Here's what we're promised will be true for us because of this new and better covenant. It's two things. To know God is first to love him. To know him is to love him. This language is all through the Psalms. Think about, for example, Psalm 34. Where, where the psalmist calls us to taste and to see that God is good. Think about David following his own advice in Psalm 16, saying, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see what, that, you see what this mindset is, this way of life is? It's, a, it's, the, it's not just knowing about him or even being able to talk to him, but it's being drawn to him. It's involving yourself in the beauty that he is. It's a, it's a love for him that's promised to us. I love the way J.I. Packer, who, who sort of wrote the book on knowing God, um, J.I. Packer summarizes this relationship this way. Packer says, We don't know another person's real quality until we have tasted the experience of friendship. Friends are, so to speak, communicating flavors to each other all the time by sharing their attitudes both toward each other, think of people in love, and toward everything else that's of common concern. And they thus open their hearts to each other by what they say and do. Each tastes the quality of the other for sorrow or for joy. They have identified themselves with and so are personally and emotionally involved in each other's concerns. They feel for each other as well as, as, well as thinking of each other. This is an essential aspect of knowledge that friends have of each other. And the same applies to Christians' knowledge of God, which is a relationship between friends. You see what Packer's getting at? What it is to know God is to be drawn into his life almost, to love what's true about him and to to want it to, to want what's true of him to be true of us to want to be about the things that he's about in the same way that love between friends shows itself when we want what's good for our friends and what they want is what we want it, it begins to shape you and change who you are without this kind of being drawn out to them with this thing that is that is love in essence we we won't know god and the problem in earlier covenants is that the people, though they knew about him, didn't love him. And not loving him, they didn't know him. There's a second element, I think, to this knowledge of God. Not only would be drawn out to it, to, to love it, to affirm it, to taste it for, what it for what he is. But it's also trust. It's also trusting in him. Because the relationship that we're, that's described to us in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament, between God and the people that he made is never one that's straight up of friend to friend, like a peer relationship. It's always pictured 
like the relationship between a father and his child or a king and his subjects or a shepherd and his sheep. To know God is to trust in God, to trust that, that what he wants for you is what's best for you, that what he gives to you is what you really need, that, that anything that could be offered by someone else is of nothing to be compared to, to what Jesus offers you. That's the call of this new, of this new covenant, to trust him like a child trusts a father. To know God like this is to know of his character, to know that he's loved, that he's for his children, that he's powerful enough to protect his children, that he has a track record of delivering on his promises to his children, and that therefore he's worth living for. He's worth obeying. Now, if this is what it means to know the Lord and that we're promised we're going to know him in this way, that we're going to relate to him as one who loves what's true of him and therefore just commits it all to him and just trusts that he's enough, for us. If that's the goal of this promise in the covenant, can't you see how this promise enables the first promise that we looked at? I think the way that God changes what we want, which is the first promise we mentioned, the way that he writes his laws on our hearts, making us love them, making us want to obey, is first and foremost to give us himself. When God satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts with himself, he in the same process changes what we want from living for ourselves or any other desire we might raise to that level to living for him because we know from experience, from taste, that he is enough for us. That's why I think that the best way to frame this second promise, the promise that makes this first promise we looked at possible is not just as knowing God, the promise that we will all know him, but that that God will satisfy us with himself and therefore take off the table any need that we might feel to go after some other source of pleasure. That's the promise of the new covenant. God changes what we want by giving us himself and satisfying us in him. Now, the last promise is the promise apart from which the other two are not even possible. We don't even get there unless this third promise is possible. It starts out in verse 12. And you can see he starts with the word for. He's drawing a foundation. Of, of, he's laying the groundwork for what's come before. So you're gonna, God's going to change what you want, and he's going to give you himself. And the reason he can do that, for, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. You see how that is presented here as the only way the other promises are possible. He's got to first address the fact that we have committed treason against him, that we have sinned and we're no longer, uh, we, we, we are all fundamentally damaged goods in this covenant. It's a promise that God's not going to hold our sins against us. And it comes here in verse 12. This is where I want to cl- close this morning. It comes here as connected deeply to memory. Do you get that in verse 12? I will be merciful towards their iniquities, he says. And then he elaborates, I will remember their sins no more. The way that he fixes this relationship, in other words, the way he makes it possible for us to know him and that makes it possible for us to, to, to have transformed desires, to change what we want, is that first he chooses in his mercy to forget what we've done against him. What comes natural to us 
is to hold on when someone's done wrong to us. We stew over it. Right? I'm, I hear, maybe I'm confessing a little too much of my own tendencies, but for what it's worth, here it goes. I'm not a confrontational person, right? I'm a people pleaser, but that doesn't mean that I'm not easily offended. It just means that when somebody does something wrong to me, I tend to just keep it inside and just stew over it. It's like, a, it's like one of those percolating coffee machines where it just takes time and gets hotter and hotter and starts bubbling up. And I hold on to it. I have imaginary conversations with the person in my head where I'm just making up objections and overcoming those objections and getting more and more just angry over it. My guess is that some of you guys are holding on to wrongs this morning, like right now. And my guess is that some of you may be holding on to wrongs done to you by somebody else sitting in this room right now. Forgiveness or the unwillingness to forgive is a factor of memory. You're unwilling to forget. Now consider the scale of wrongs against God compared to the scale of wrongs that others have committed against us. And consider God's perfect and all-knowing memory. That God has a perfect recollection of every thought and deed from the beginning of time. And now consider that he's promising to forget. That's a beautiful promise beyond words. And it's only possible because Jesus has dealt perfectly with our sins. One of the things we've been talking about the most as we study through Hebrews and One of the things we're going to talk about most in the weeks to come is how Jesus' sacrifice for us makes this promise possible. How it's possible for God to forget because everything that we owed, every punishment that was due to us has been perfectly wiped clean because of the death of Jesus. The knowledge of God that we've just been talking about, this relationship that's the reason we were made and it's the goal of this covenant that binds us to him is only possible if sins are forgotten. And we, we know why this is true, don't we? Don't you know from experience in your relationships how it's really impossible to go deep with someone, to deeply love them and bind yourself to them if you keep remembering things that they've done against you? If you sort of try to forgive them and you, and you have maybe to an extent and you don't think about it all the time but but at strategic moments in your relationship you whip that thing back out and use it like a club haven't you experienced how how that is a is a barrier that just can't get crossed in your relationship with that person haven't you seen how at the very least even if you really really want to forgive and let and let things go that oftentimes the wrongs that people do to us they shape how we view them from then on out Even if we're not holding on to that one thing they did to us, they start to color how we think about them. We start to interpret them in ways that aren't charitable. We we refuse to give them the benefit of the doubt because now they are this type of person to us. And it's not like we're holding on to that one thing, but we're holding on to the impact of that one thing on how we look at them. And, And knowledge of someone, relationship with them, isn't possible where sins are remembered. It just isn't. So we're hopeless. If we want this relationship with God that we were made for, the one that promises us life and peace forever, unless God first and foremost commits to forget everything that we've done against him. And that is precisely what he's promised. In a way, you could see the old, the old covenant, the, the system of belief and practice that the Old Testament describes as a system set up for memory. 
they had to give the same sacrifices over and over again. Every year, they came back with these Day of Atonement sacrifices as a reminder to the people that they weren't okay, that this relationship that, they, that God wanted with them was not really fully possible yet. But now because Jesus has given up himself and once and for all wiped clean the record of wrongs we've done, the system is brand new. And it's built not for memory, but for an anticipation of a future in which our knowledge of God is unmediated, but direct through his Son. A knowledge of him that is so full and so life-giving, there is no room in our hearts to long for any other. The new system is about what we were made for and what we're destined for if we trust in Jesus. That's the beauties of the new covenant. You see how these promises build on each other? God promises to change what we want. How is he going to do that? Because what we want just is in such control over us. We, we long for all of these different things. And how, is he going to, how is he going to make us focused and want really what is, what is in his way and his truth to want to live for him? He's going to do that when he satisfies us with himself, when he, when he commits to, to knowing us and us knowing him. That's how he changes what we want. But how can we know him as it's promised to us if our, if our sins make us unworthy of this relationship, if there's something that he has to remember because, nothing, because, because justice demands it? It's, that promise is only fulfillable if the promise to forget our sins is true, if he's true to his word. The goal for today is that you taste the sweetness of this gospel. Next week, we're going to focus on living the implications of these promises. But today, I just want you to savor it. The promises, if you take them all as a whole, they amount to this. To God committing that he is not going to let us spoil the relationship that he wants to have with us. And he has designed a covenant in which he provides for everything that's necessary for that covenant to thrive. He does that by changing who we are, creating an unbreakable bond. He does it in the words of 1 John 4 that were read for us earlier this, this morning. In this is love. Not that we loved God. What we brought to the table was a rebellion against him, abandonment of him, preference for other things. In this is love, not that we loved God but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, Father, help us to love this gospel. These are promises that change everything. We want to experience that change. We want to trust the truthfulness of these promises. We want to distrust all of the other competing affections that call for our attention we want the change that's promised to us here. Would you give it to us as you've promised to do? I pray for people sitting out there right now, sitting in front of me, who don't think that they can change, who are so beaten down by sins that are too powerful for them that they don't know where to turn. I pray that you will write your law in their hearts, that you will change what they want, that you will make things that are things that are just repulsive to the truth of your character repulsive to them that you would make the things that you love the things that they love 
I pray for all of us this morning that you would help us to love the truth that we are known by you, that we get to know you, and that it's all possible because the, the, the sins we bring to the table are remembered no more. We want to savor the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And our minds, left to themselves, are not up to it. So write your law on our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.